back with you again. So I wanted to start with that song. That song is uh, called We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, and it is a Negro spiritual that was sung sometime between 1750 and 1825. The theologian and civil rights leader Howard Thurman commented on this spiritual, and he said that he believes that it articulates a theology of hope. So this is what he says. There seems to be, basic to human experience, a kind of incurable optimism about the ultimate destiny of man, sometimes blindly, sometimes with scarce hope of vindication, often with wild irrationality. The spirit of man dares to affirm ultimate hope. And Thurman continues, he says, we are all climbing Jacob's ladder and every round goes higher and higher. All who recognize that this is a living part of their experience join with those early destiny-bound singers who marched through all the miseries of slavery, confident that they could never be entirely earth-bound. This is a song that sprang out of a common experience of slavery that has a message of hope for everyone. And as Thurman expresses, it's a message that says all who recognize that this is a living part of their experience, join with those who sing the song. Likewise, there's another song called the Ani Ma'amen, and it's derived from a Jewish set of principles or prayers of faith, and it's translated literally, I believe. And the final line of the Ani Ma'amen was set to music at a time of misery during the Holocaust. The Alberta Jewish News tells the story of when the Ani Ma'amen was set to music. It was on a crowded train set for the death camp Treblinka, and one man recited the Ani Ma'amen. And because of his background in music, when he got to the final line in the song, he decided, in the, in the prayer, he decided to sing it as a song, and he sang it out loud for those around him to hear. And so the Alberta Jewish News describes the scene this way. It says, presently, Reb Azrael David composed a slow, somber, haunting melody for the words of the 12th principle and began singing the melody at first quietly and then stronger, the lyrics rolling from his mouth like honey. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, even though he may tarry nevertheless I wait each day for his coming. The rest of the car went silent. Ani Ma'amen, condensed to its essence, is a song of affirmation and of promise. The affirmation of our faith at a time when everything appears lost. And the promise that even from the depths of hopelessness, a better future can 
arise. Reb Azriel David's Ani Ma'amin would have vanished with the poor souls on that train if not for two young men who, climbing on the shoulder of the other, they found a crack in the roof and they, they enlarged it and they climbed on top and jumped to the ground. Now one of those men was killed in the fall, but the other one survived and escaped, taking the words and the music of the Ani Ma'amun in his head with him. In these times of severe struggle and, and misery, the slaves of the South and the Jews on a death train to Treblinka found hope in a song. Hope in songs that promised a better future, if not for them now, later, somewhere down the road for others. These songs embrace the tension of what theologians call the now and the not yet. That there are some things that we will experience now, some good that we will see now, pieces of God's promise that give us hope in the present, that sustain us today, that will help us make it through so that we can receive what is coming later. So last time I was here, just a couple weeks ago, um, we discussed Isaiah 6. And in Isaiah 6, it's a difficult message. It's a difficult passage where God tells Isaiah to deliver to the people a message of captivity, of exile, of destruction, and tremendous loss. The future for those who heard that message was bleak. But because God is faithful, because he does not abandon his people, he included a message of hope in there. A picture of a stump. Do you guys remember that stump? The picture of a stump, a tree cut down. And from that stump, God would send a savior, the promised Messiah to save his people. And so the message now was devastating, but the future was hopeful. So today we're going to look at chapters 11 and 12 in Isaiah. And in this section, we're going to revisit that stump again, um, that stump from chapter 6, and get a glimpse of what God is doing now and what he will do in the future. Today we're going to do something that my first seminary professor challenged us to do day one of his class. He told us to embrace the tension. And when I first heard that in that class, I hated that phrase because I wanted him to tell me exactly how things were gonna go, to tell me how everything was gonna be and how everything could be tied up in a bow. And he didn't do that. He said, we're gonna have to embrace the tension. And now I say that phrase all the time, especially when um, sitting with young adults. Because embracing the tension for us today means acknowledging that God is at work now and in the future. It's recognizing that Jesus is king today and in the future. So Isaiah 11 obviously follows Isaiah 10, um, but to understand the start of Isaiah 11, we're going to read the last few verses in Isaiah 10. So if you've got your Bibles and you've got them open to Isaiah, flip first to Isaiah 10, and we're going to read uh, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. So the time has come now 
for God's anger toward Israel to end and to turn his anger toward the Assyrians and the nations that have brought the people into bondage. And if you keep looking further down at verses 33 and 34, it says, See, the Lord, the Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Trees. There are all these images of trees throughout scripture, and um, trees in scripture are actually a theme, an important theme in the Bible, because trees are often used to symbolize people. So last time we had the tree stump, right, that, uh, that symbolized the people of Israel being cut down. And here in chapter 10, these trees of great power, these lofty trees represent the Assyrians and the Egyptians and these nations that have kept the people in bondage. And so God is coming through and he is lopping off the boughs. He is bringing low. He is cutting these forests down with his axe because it's time now for God to come in and rescue his people. And so he's using the same image that he used before, cutting down these trees. And so this is the part um, of the now, in the now and not yet idea, where God is coming in and he is delivering his people. He's going to bring them out of exile. He's going to bring them out of captivity. They will experience this, this reality in the present. He, he did what he said he was going to do. What he foreshadowed actually happens. But there was also more to come. So chapter 10 flows directly into chapter 11 because we're still having that tree imagery and we are reintroduced to that stump. So look at verse 11 where it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So here is the stump. And instead of a seed, now we see that there is a shoot that has come out from it. A shoot comes out from the stump of Jesse and also from the roots a branch that will bear fruit. So you did a lot of work in your study, and so you guys already know that Jesse is uh, David's father and that the shoot represents Jesus. Both the shoot and the root point to Jesus. We talked about that last time, and what's interesting about that picture of the stump is that there is life from the top and from below. The root and the shoot work together. So Jesus is both that shoot and that root, and so Jesus is both the fruit and the thing that provides the life and sustaining power of that tree. Does that make sense? It's working together. Jesus is both And so from our perspective, we know that this points to Jesus, right? We have the full view of scripture, and so we understand how this image works. For the people in Isaiah's time, this is for them the not yet part, because they have not experienced Jesus. But they've heard stories about a coming Messiah. They know the stories of what happened in Eden with Adam and Eve, and they know about the hostility that exists between the serpent and humanity. And they also know that God made a promise back then that he would crush the head of that serpent, that death would eventually be defeated, that there would be a Messiah. So they didn't know Jesus the way that we know him, But Isaiah paints a picture for them that mirrors what we do know, a picture of a king. 
And so in Moyer's commentary on Isaiah, he says, under the Messiah, the whole world is reordered and transformed, and the kingdom is realized. So Isaiah paints a picture of a future reality that has present implications. And so the remaining portion of Isaiah 11 can be broken down this way. And y'all don't have a rhyme this time. We'll have to try that again next time. But I I did kind of break it down for you, at least in my opinion, um, how I think it works. Where God is reigning and will reign, God is just and will bring justice. God is our peace and will bring peace, and it is and will be for everyone. So to me, these, these statements illustrate for you the now and the not yet idea. The idea that some things are in place now, Now, as we speak, some things will happen in the future. Some things are yet to be realized. And John Piper has this helpful illustration when it comes to this concept. He said, it's like looking at a mountain range. So when you look at a mountain range, from the outside, you can see all of the mountains. There are some mountains that are close, and there are some that are far away. But when you're standing at a distance, they all look the same distance away. It's not until you get closer that you realize that some are close and some are far. So my family uh, went to Colorado this summer, and we had a bucket list of things to do. We were there for a week, and uh, the place that we were staying was about 30 minutes from the Great Sand Dunes National Park, and that was my number one bucket list item. I had researched all the different things to do going to the Great Sand Dunes, and so finally came the day in our vacation where we were going to the sand dunes. So we packed up the family and we trekked down there. And I have to be honest, from far away, you can't even see the sand dunes. You don't even know that they exist. But you keep going down this really long road and you're kind of just waiting to see them appear and it takes a long time. It's probably 10, you're probably 10 minutes away before you actually see the sand dunes. And when you're 10 minutes out, they look kind of puny. And so I started thinking, I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be really disappointing and maybe we shouldn't have like made this our number one bucket list item. But, you know, we were already heading there. So we were like, let's continue on to the dunes. But as we got closer, of course, they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, these, the, the sand dunes in uh, Colorado, the Great Sand Dunes National Park, these dunes are set against the backdrop of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. So it's not just these big sand dunes, but then these bigger mountains behind. So we're about five minutes away from the dunes, and it's this odd sight of looking at this sand and behind it these snow-capped mountains and that, that are enormous. And so finally we park and we go into the Great Sand Dunes National Park. And it felt as if these sand dunes stretched for miles. We have a picture of my son. Um, this is what, what it was like for us up there. It looks like he's going off into like the, you know, the desert and he's going to be lost for miles, right? Because that's the picture. When we were there, that is what we could see. That was our now, But if we looked up, if we looked beyond the sand dune, there were the mountains, and that was the not yet. And so that was the experience. That's what we're talking about, of experiencing something now, the sand, but just beyond the desert, just beyond the sand, is the mountains, something that we had not yet experienced, 
but that we would eventually, if we had spent enough time there, we would eventually get to those mountains. And so from that perspective, you might feel like you're lost in the sand, but if you just raise your eyes, you would realize that there is more to come. So I think of these statements as both the sand dunes and the mountain range. So keep that kind of image in your mind as we continue through. So God is reigning and will reign. So if we look at Isaiah 11 and we look at verses 2 and 3, we're going to read those. It says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So in verses two and three, again, we have that image of the shoot, which is Jesus, and the way that the spirit of the Lord rests on him. So this image is kind of like a divine commissioning. Uh, He will receive all of his power from the Lord. And this is referring sort of to his human nature, because this is a picture of the intricate yet complicated way that the Trinity kind of works together. So um, the Trinity supports one another. And so Jesus's human nature experiences the outpouring of the spirit, even though he is God, the spirit is on him and in him at the same time. So think about um, the moment when Jesus is baptized and there's the voice of God, the father, there's the dove descending on him. And so you have this picture of the Trinity. Think of that in this image as well. It's the Trinity at work in a way that we can't even fully explain. And so this passage, along with verse 1, points to the fact that there is a new king, not a new David, because then it would just be the shoot, right? The shoot just points to a new David. But then we have this branch that comes from the roots. So it's something different than just a new David. It's an entirely new kind of king, one that is entirely dependent on God, that will be dependent on God, that will be submitted to the will of the Father, Um, who will have wisdom and understanding, who will have counsel and might, and he will reign differently than any other king that has come before, any other king that will come. And so, and then it says he has the fear of the Lord. And this is another kind of Trinitarian example of the way the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together. So the fear is not like, I'm I'm afraid, but it's this reverence and awe um, that his human nature is being brought into submission under. His his, uh, human nature being submitted to his divine nature. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So he is the shoot and the branch. Remember, he is the fruit, and he is also the life-giving source of that fruit. And so for the people in Isaiah's time, this was an entirely future hope. This was entirely not yet for them. They didn't have a concept that Jesus would come as a person and die and be resurrected. But for us, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has announced his kingdom. He came and announced his kingdom, and he forever changed our world. He changed things by defeating death with his resurrection, but it's also just the beginning even for us. So for us, this might be like crossing the sand dunes and then standing at the foot of the mountains. We, we've come further than the Israelites, but we still have a long way to go, something to hope for in the future, something about God's promise that is still yet to be realized. So Jesus's life and announcement of the kingdom breaks the curse, and we are no longer separated from God. So he is reigning now, and he will reign in ways that we don't even know or can't even imagine in the future. 
God is just and will bring justice. So if you continue in verses four and five, it says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So what does the reign of Jesus look like? He judges, again, in an entirely different way than we would. He doesn't rely on human devices like we would. He doesn't need to hear the story or see the evidence. He judges the hearts of men. He knows our hearts. So when he judges, it's with fairness and it is with truth. And so many rulers at this time Uh, They were ruling and judging based on their own power and might, what they could do on their own. And often anyone who was weak or poor was just subject to their rule and subject to their decisions. There was no fairness. And so sometimes people would bribe their rulers or they would find some way to petition on their own behalf in order to receive some sort of fair trial or fair judgment. And so the people were often treated unfairly when they could pay. So the poor were often left kind of um, on their own because they could not pay to swing things in their favor. favor. And so Jesus would not rule that way. It's saying he's not going to do that. He's going to have justice for everyone. It's going to be an equal justice for all. He would not do it with physical power, but he would use the words of his mouth. And the people of Isaiah's time they would see some of these things change as they were brought out of bondage, as they realized um, justice being done. They would experience some of that in their own time, but they would not see it fully realized. So the Messiah was foretold and um, would show justice. Um, Justice would come, and so they would see a picture of it. We have seen more of it as we see Jesus and we read about his Sermon on the Mount where he changes everything, and he talks about um, the kingdom being for the meek and for the poor. And then that's a picture for us that we have that's a little bit more clear, but yet for us there is still more to be realized more justice to come, more justice that is needed that only God can bring. So he's given us a glimpse of his justice, but because we have a glimpse, we know that God is just, but we know that he will continue to bring justice in the future. God is our peace and will bring peace. So continuing in verse six and nine, six through nine, it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." So this is an interesting picture of life in the future. This is that last mountain. This is the mountain that feels so far away that you're like, I don't know that we will ever get there. That's what this is a picture of. And so many uh, commentators believe that this is a picture of Eden restored. 
This is a time when there's no more hostility because we have the, the lamb and the wolf living together. We have both the cow and the bear feasting together. It's no more carnivore, herbivore. They're all grazing together on the grass. And then it says um, that even a child will lead the calf and the lion and the yearling. And what's interesting about that is that paints a picture of God's original design for mankind to have dominion over creation. And so it's saying that this is so perfect that a child will be able to exercise dominion over the creatures of the earth as was intended by God in, in, uh, in the beginning. But yet, even the more clear picture of Eden restored comes with that image of an infant playing where the viper lives at the cobra's nest, because that's saying that no longer is the serpent the enemy of humanity. So this passage envisions a time when that curse has been removed, a time in the future that is yet to be realized, a perfect picture of peace where everyone follows the Lord. It says, as the sea covers the earth, everyone follows the Lord. And so even though this picture is definitely future focused, we don't see any glimpses of, you know, lions and cows and bears together. There are glimpses of God's peace in our world today. Maybe not the wolf and the lamb, but maybe like that slave song that we listened to a minute ago or the Ani Ma'am a day when people who were in bondage sang a song of peace, knowing that God would deliver them. And he did. He did. He brought slaves into freedom, and he ended the war that caused death for so many. It's not fully realized. Our peace is not fully realized. There's still so much brokenness. But we can rest knowing that he is our peace and he will continue to bring peace. And then finally, it is and it will be for everyone. So looking at the last part of the chapter, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over it in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. So this last passage is a reminder for us all that the message of our Lord has been for everyone and is for everyone. The root of Jesse, that shoot Jesus, stands as a banner 
for all the people, all the nations come and they rally to him. Not just one nation, but all nations. All nations are drawn to him. So what began as a message for one nation, one nation that the Lord chose and set apart, now this picture is all the nations coming together, worshiping him together. Everyone, one nation turns into many. So God opens up the kingdom to everyone, everyone that would call on his name and choose to follow him. They are welcome to come into his kingdom. And he gathers the scattered Israelites and he brings the nations in together. And the water image is interesting here because bodies of water are natural barriers for people. Uh, many people throughout time settled along the banks of rivers or, or, or lakes, and those bodies of water are a natural boundary, and you cannot get to the other side unless you have a boat or some other means. So if you cannot get to the other side, then you're stuck, you're confined to just your part of the land. But here it says that the Lord changed that, right? He, he um, dried up the water so that they could cross. So if you think about the Israelites when they fled from Pharaoh and they came against the Red Sea, they could not cross the Red Sea except for God's intervention. Only by God's power and God's ability to separate the water could they walk across and be saved. So in this passage, God breaks up the water and he, he brings it so low that they can cross over with sandals. With sandals. They don't need boots or anything like that. They can cross over in their sandals. He makes it possible for all the nations to come together. No longer are there these barriers between them, but everyone is free to cross and come to Jesus. And then finally in chapter 12 is a song of praise. We're not going to read all of chapter 12, but um, this chapter is a, a praise song of what God has done and what he is doing. And the first verse of chapter 12, it does open with these words, which I'll read. And it says, in that day, you will say, in that day, you will say, when all of this that has been described in chapter 11 has been fully realized, you will praise the Lord. You will rejoice for what he has done. You will shout his name. How could you not having experienced all of those things? It's a future-focused song of what will happen in the end when Jesus comes in full glory and everything comes to pass. But... Can't we do that now also? Can't we praise the Lord now for what he has already done while looking ahead to what he is doing? Knowing that what is past cannot compare, will not compare to what is coming. What is coming is something that we cannot even fathom. Even reading that passage, we cannot fathom what it will be like. Yet what God has done and what he is doing is still worthy of praise. Because what he did got us to where we are, and what he is doing will keep us going to get where he wants us to be. What was once destroyed, that stump, has found new life. The new life is a person, the Messiah, Jesus he will rule with righteousness. He will rule with justice. He will change the world, and he has already broken the curse. He will be a signal of hope for the nations that it is safe 
to come home. And this reality will be for everyone. At the heart of this message, at the heart of this passage, is the truth that God is faithful. God is faithful. He can be trusted. So may we take what we have seen in this passage, the gospel accounts of Jesus that we know, that we have read, the way that God has worked in our own lives, and may we use those things as fuel for us for the future. May we praise God for what he has done, for what he is doing, and for what he will do. And may we begin our own trek through the mountains, knowing that there are some things that we will realize today, and there are other things that will be saved for the future. And scripture says, you will say, but what can we say today? How can we praise God today? What has God shown you today that will sustain you for tomorrow? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much again, God. It's such a privilege to be able to do this. And Father, I, we praise you, Lord, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do, God, that you have been faithful throughout time. God, and while some of us feel like we are in the sand dunes navigating the desert, remind us that there are things to come that you have promises that have yet to be realized, that there are pictures of peace and justice that are coming, that there is hope for the future. And God, may we praise you now for the things that you are doing now, for the areas of life and peace and justice that you make known now. That though there were songs of despair sung long ago, that they all contained a message of hope. And so may we as your daughters, when we engage the world outside, may we be those that recognize that things are not the way that they are supposed to be, but that there is hope. And so may we paint a picture or sing a song for others of hope, of what you are doing, what you will do, and that you have always remained faithful. God, I thank you for these women who have committed to studying your word, who have committed to be here. God, continue to fuel their faith, continue to deepen their reliance and trust on you, God. May we continue to lean on one another as we continue through this journey. I thank you again, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen.